Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, my uh, faithful uh, uh, co-host and I, Dale Stenberg, are delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper, uh, who is uh, an ordained Lutheran pastor, president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, and the executive director of Just and Sinner, which we'll talk about perhaps in a moment. Uh, 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 first of all, Dr. Cooper, thanks so much for being with us on the program today. Um, we're, we're here to talk about uh, Dr. Cooper's book, Union with Christ, Salvation as Participation, which is part of a multi-volume project on a contemporary uh, scholastic, Protestant scholastic theology. Uh, if, I, if I recall, uh, Widener Institute yeah, uh, uh, for, oh, this was first published by Justin Sinner. Um, maybe the first thing to do, actually, before we get into talking about this particular book, is just to have you talk about uh, uh, what your work and sort of the contemporary theological American Lutheran scene is. What's the, uh, you have, you know, uh, 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 affiliation with executive director of Justin Sinner for We Reformed Cats, uh, you know, on the other side of certain theological, you know, communities and such. What is Justin Sinner and sort of what is your your, your kind of project within Lutheranism? Uh, because, you know, part of what we want to do is to have the Reformed be aware of uh, interesting movements going on in theological, you know, Lutheran theology. Mm. So, yeah, maybe that's the first way to start. Yeah, sure. There's a lot to say, but I'll try to be uh, brief about Justin Center and what we are and what we do. Um, essentially, Justin Center is a thing I actually started uh, while I was a Calvinist, and it was just a blog I had in college. Uh, and then somehow that name transformed into an organization many years later, and it was a slow process of doing that. But uh, coming from uh, myself, a Reformed background, um, you know, baptized uh, in a in a it was a PCUSA church, but a confessing PCUSA church. Um, having grown up kind of in the Reformed world, uh, I my theological priorities shifted and, and beliefs shifted a number of things, thinking through uh, differences between Lutheran and Reformed theology, and ultimately I came over to the Lutheran side of things. Uh, but but one thing I noticed was that in the Lutheran world, there was nothing like a, you know, Ligonier Ministries or, you know, which by the time I was, when I, when I was in college, that was a big thing when, when Sproul was, you know, still around and you know, his work was hugely influential on me. Um, and in some ways that uh, I, I've, I've had this, I had this vision for quite some time of having basically creating the resource that I wish I had had when I was looking into Lutheranism, mm -hmm. uh, because there just wasn't anything like, like what we're doing at the time. And I think there are some more, some more groups doing this as well. And, you know, I know with Davenant, you guys do something probably very, very similar to what we do in, in more of a reformed uh, and Anglican um, approach. But um, so it's, we've been around for now, um, man, how, uh, I think it's, this is, yeah, this is nine years. So it'll be our 10th year uh, as an organization. Mm. Um, and that is doing more than just having a blog under that title <laughs> that we've been doing yeah. some publishing efforts. And, right. And it, and, and it's grown. So um, basically what we do, it consists in, I've got a podcast uh, that I do weekly that I've done for nine years now. Um, we've got a publishing house that basically just started as a way to republish some older Lutheran works that just haven't been in print for a long time. Uh, there was stuff that I found really beneficial and I was recommending to people and finding that like, I'm recommending people books and they're like, oh, I can only find a used copy for 80 bucks. So uh, yeah. <laughs> right, it was not doable. So, so I looked into you know, the possibility of printing some of these resources myself. And that's kind of how we started with that. Um, so I moved into this more recently. It was, you know, just over a year ago now uh, into a more full-time capacity. My time is basically half with a seminary, as you mentioned, and half with Justin Center as an organization. Um, and so we put together a number of fellows. We started the Widener Institute, which is you know, a branch of Justin Center that hosts seminars and uh, promotes contemporary scholastic theology within the Lutheran tradition. So kind of our, our goal is to produce resources that are modern, that are dealing with contemporary issues uh, from modern authors, but ones that are rooted in that classical tradition. Mm. Um, so the goal there has always been trying to kind of navigate the path between, on the one hand, just a idealization of the past or an idealization of tradition to say, you know, I, I don't think we want to come at the, the approach that says the 17th century was the golden era of theology and we have no progress since then. Right. Um, but at the same time, 
we tend to be very critical of a lot of the movements in theology, particularly in the 20th century. So we're trying to figure out how can we recapture some of those ideas without just retreating to the past, but how can we really apply them in a way that is sensitive to the issues of the day, sensitive to the scholarship going on today, um, but is, is still founded within that classical tradition. So that's my very brief summary. I mean, I could say a lot. Oh, no, that's sure, sure, I've got a whole sure. pitch I could give, but. There is some overlap. You're right, uh, somewhat significant overlap between it sure. seems like what Justin Sinner is doing and what, what Davenard is doing in sort of a reformed, like you said, broadly kind of reformed Anglican, but other, sure. other reformed con contexts as well. Um, and one thing I'm, you know, personally curious about, and I think it would be helpful for our readers to know, uh, again, like, you know, I think it would be wonderful if uh, more Protestant authors or, or more Reformed persons were aware of uh, the, the best of sort of Lutheran systematics and, you know, their particular, rather than just reading it by means of Bovink and Turretin and whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I'm curious what, uh, if somebody wanted to kind of dip their toe in classic uh, 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 Lutheran systematic theology, mm. who would, is there a person that, that is, is sort of analogous to uh, our Bovink? You know, is there a sort of Lutheran Bovink who's sort of a, a theologian who sort of consolidates the tradition, but also has a first sort of toe dipped in the modern world. Uh, uh, you know, Bavink sort of straddles, or you sure, know, sort of yeah. orthodoxy and modernity. And I'm curious if there's a kind of go-to uh, analog in the Lutheran systematics world. Yeah, that, that's a good question because it's kind of hard to make an exact parallel between Bavink and anybody. And I hear this a lot from Reformed people, like, who's the Lutheran version of? And then they pick out a figure. <laughs> and, right. and, and, and I think we can kind of make parallels to some degree. Um, this is really my interest specifically in a lot of 19th and early 20th century Lutheran works that were out of print, um, was that there were a lot of figures in that time period that were addressing modernity, but doing it with very much you know, with an eye to the past and looking at what the, the developments of specifically the 17th century. Um, so th the figure that I would recommend the most uh, that I come up with first would be Revere Franklin Widener, who our institute is named after. Mm. Um, so yeah, he, he died in 1918. I believe I have the date right there. So um, he started a series of systematics uh, textbooks going through, um, you know, each major um, doctrine of the Christian faith. Uh, he died before it was completed, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. But we have, I, I have this long-term project in mind, which, which is going to basically uh, formulate a, you know, hardbound three-volume set uh, that will be a complete dogmatics, which basically takes Widener's uh, dogmatics that he did put together at different points in his life. Uh, and then on the subjects that he didn't complete will be a, a compilation of some writings from from, from him and other resources where he addressed those issues. And then where we don't have even those things from him from a couple of his favorite references or professors, his own mm. uh, mentors and teachers. Um, so uh, he that would be the one uh, that would be kind of the, you know, Bavink type figure uh, who wrote so extensively of a systematic, but yeah, again, he died before it was completed. So mm. uh, we're gonna try to do what we can to release kind of okay. what that project would be if it was done. So, um, yeah. But otherwise, um, Henry Eister Jacobs is a really wonderful figure um, in that same era as well, um, hugely influential for American Lutheranism. And I usually recommend his work, A Summary of the Christian Faith, as the best introduction to what is, you know, Lutheran scholasticism, if you want to use that term, or Lutheran orthodoxy. Um, and I think what he does really well is he kind of consolidates all of that theology that developed in those earlier eras, but he also just writes it in a way that is really accessible hmm. uh, in, in a way that I think someone who's not trained necessarily in all of the Latin terminology that, that, you know, we often use in more scholastic theology, right. uh, that that is a really accessible, helpful introduction. So um, he, that is, is probably the first volume I would recommend. If you want to just get a taste of the 17th century guys themselves, um, there is a book uh, by Heinrich Schmid, the doctrinal theology of the evangelical Lutheran church that I believe I'm saying the title right there. Um, but it's basically a, a compendium of all of those figures. So oh, he, okay. he has citations from mostly just the 17th century. This guys. is like your, the Lutheran Hepe, maybe, I want to say. It is very similar, yes. Okay, yes. Yes, okay. very similar to that. Okay, 
Okay, fascinating. That's very helpful. Uh, and it's something I think we need to be we need to be more aware of. And, and maybe that's a good a good segue, if, nevertheless. Well, if go I can say one one more yeah, thing. Please, go ahead. If you want to go to the classics, uh, if you want to dive really deep, Johann Gerhard is the one to go to. Okay. Um, and Concordia right. Publishing House puts out, you know, he's got a giant, his systematics is it's huge. I mean, it's, I've got it sitting next to me. It takes up almost a whole shelf of what, what's released now. It's not all published yet. So uh, if, if you want to really dive deep, that's the place to go, though the volumes are not particularly cheap. But <laughs> yeah. Um, well, speaking about uh, Lutheran scholasticism, let's get into your book. Uh, so I, I, I want to say first, um, you write very clear. It, it's refreshing when somebody can take thorny sort of issues that have a bunch of various nuances and you're interacting with different sources and to just sort of present the heart of each of the arguments and then put them in conversation with one another uh, and to interact with uh, the Lutheran confessions. So um, Joe was mentioning there's some similarities between the reformed world and the Lutheran world when it comes to debates on scholastic issues. So we had a controversy that is sort of still going, but not really, where it was like Calvin versus the Calvinists. Sure, right? yeah. Uh, Richard Muller started writing about yeah. um, predestination and election and, and these various sort of distinctives of the reformed world. And it seems like that's what you're addressing in this book is you're, you're sort of saying the contemporary Lutheran uh, studies are departing from Luther or they're, or they're retelling the story of Luther's thought to comport with a modern day understanding. And that was because of a shift in philosophical emphasis or yes. maybe the move away from uh, one emphasis into a new emphasis. And that forces them to sort of read Luther through this new lens sure. and, then re and then talk about how the confessions uh, <laughs> align with their view um, and your sort of throwing up a big caution sign and going, we need to go back to the sources and actually talk about this, guys. Yes. So set the context for the for the controversy for us first, uh, and then we'll get into some of the reasons that the modern day uh, Lutherans are departing from the historic uh, sort of scholastic emphases. Yeah. Sure, I think this is something you see kind of across traditions in general is when you get to the 19th century, late 19th, early 20th century, especially, um, you have a lot of challenges to what were the reformers saying versus what did the theologians come after them saying. So you do have the Calvin versus the Calvinist thesis, uh, you know, arising at that time, but you do have something very similar going on with Lutherans as well. Uh, and I think neo-orthodoxy plays a part in this as well. When you look at guys like Bart, who, who are largely drawing on the reformers, but with very different, I think, philosophical assumptions than, than the immediate post-reformation thinkers. So I think there are a lot of, a lot of figures kind of involved in that. But the, from a Lutheran approach, I could give you just a kind of a couple of the major heavy hitters to set the stage theologically in terms of what's going on. Uh, a, a kind of a first primary figure that's there is Albrecht Ritchell. Uh, and Ritchell is very well-known name uh, kind of the second major figure of Protestant liberalism after Schleiermacher. And what differentiates Ritual, I mean, there are many things that differentiate Ritual, but in terms of Luther studies, is that he's really, he really focuses a lot on the figure of Martin Luther, uh, more than someone like, like a Schleiermacher would. So he's trying to take the tenets of Protestant liberalism and his particular unique approach to it and saying that he's actually understanding Luther in some ways better uh, than the post-Reformation Lutheran tradition. So mm. this starts a process in Luther studies of trying to divorce Luther from the tradition that came after him to say, maybe the tradition that came after him really didn't understand Luther. And in particular, the argument is that there's a kind of reversion to scholasticism. So Luther is seen as kind of the arch anti-scholastic mm. and scholasticism was the cause of, of all ills in the middle ages. And Luther, you know, kind of saved uh, the, the church from that. So Ritchell's going to say that scholasticism departs from Luther. He's also going to have a huge critique of pietism as well, um, which he largely rejects precisely because of their emphasis on this idea of, of the mystical union. So he's rejecting kind of the two major movements in Lutheranism after Luther, you know, which is both of those, the, the Lutheran orthodoxy and than Lutheran pietism. So from Ritual, what ends up happening in a lot of, especially German theology, is 
the shifts within Lutheranism in terms of scholarship, and I think you, you just see this in terms of the number of publications. If, if you look at publications uh, on the figure of Luther or Luther's idea of whatever it might be and original systematic works on those particular doctrines, you begin to see that the publications start to shift away from you know, the doctrine of the church to publication on say, Luther's doctrine of the church. So mm. Luther studies ends up taking over the field of systematics in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, I really don't think it's unfair to say. So the, the question in so much scholarship now becomes, well, what did Luther say instead of a constructive positive dogmatics? And I think what really ends up happening there is ultimately they are doing constructive dogmatics, but they're trying to place those ideas back in the mouth of Luther, because it becomes, I think, much more difficult to say you're being consistent with that tradition when you have the highly formulated views of someone like uh, even a Melanchthon or uh, right. going further, a Chemnitz or Gerhard or these others that have very clear doctrinal positions laid out in these large textbooks. It's not as easy to put your ideas in there, but there's a lot more ambiguity, I think, with Luther. It's not so systematic, so it becomes a lot easier to kind of reinterpret Luther in light of Yes. What, what ends up being, I think, whatever kind of philosophical commitments or pre-commitments one, one might have when approaching those texts. And a, and a similar, it seems like a similar issue gets risen, arises in the Luther versus Lutheranism debate that arises in the Calvin versus the Calvinist debate, which is, um, on the one hand, uh, the historiographical record or the historiographical sort of sort of status of the question can be such that, okay, we now know that we just don't do Calvin versus the Calvinists. You're not supposed to do yeah. Lutheran versus the Luther versus the Lutherans. But what's interesting is that motif can be deployed for sort of very different programs. So yes. what does it mean to say uh, we don't put Pitt Luther against the Lutherans? What's the payoff of that? And another thing it seems like your book is your book is doing is, uh, is saying uh, some of the themes that were discovered in Luther by the people who sort of did the Luther versus Lutheranism thing a little bit, some of those themes were based upon close readings of Luther. And what nobody seems to realize is that nevertheless, all of those things that they find so interesting in Luther are also found in the very scholastic tradition that they're discarding on the other hand. Yes. And I see that in the Calvin versus the Calvinist debates as well, sort yeah. of like, here's what Calvin got that all the scholastics got rid of. And the answer isn't necessarily to say, no, Calvin was a scholastic, just like these guys. Often it's just no, the scholastics are saying the same thing as Calvin in the vernacular yeah. of scholasticism. Uh, and so there's a, there's a, uh, uh, I had a friend who in, in our circles, it's, it's, it's pretty frequent to sort of use Muller, for instance, to sort of justify various reform programs. But part of what, as one of my, uh, one of our friends, Stephen Wedgworth put it, part of the reason Muller gets so much continuity across reform theology is because he draws a pretty wide net you know, for, for Muller, what you, in, in, sort of like what you're saying here, uh, implicitly part of the program, presumably here, is it's not just about Luther, <laughs> just yes. like it's not just about Calvin. That's a, there's a bigger tent that needs to be drawn when we talk about what is our tradition and how do we relate to these figures. So, uh, um, yeah, anyway. Yeah, sure. So I, I think that's, that's exactly the problem with a lot of Lutheran identity is Lutheran identity has been so focused in, especially the last hundred years or so, on just this figure of Martin Luther. And I think that's completely wrongheaded. It's certainly not what Luther himself would have wanted. And it's really not how the Lutheran tradition has seen itself before. Uh, and I, I think it's just so key to say Lutheran theology is defined by our confessional heritage. It's defined yeah. by our confessions. We have a book of confessions, the book of Concord. Uh, in reality, Melanchthon wrote more of the book of Concord than Luther did. And Luther has writings in there, and, and he certainly is a key figure in his historical moment and, and unique in that way. But there is no reason to define Lutheranism by just its founder any more than there is to define the Reformed tradition solely by Calvin. I think that's mistaken. So I would mm -hmm. say, you know, to some extent, when we're talking about these questions, while I do think it's important to show that there is continuity between Luther and the later tradition, in some ways, though, it doesn't matter that much. Yeah. You know, I don't I don't think we have to prove Luther believed everything that Johann Gerhard said or or these right. any of these later figures, because it doesn't really matter. We have to show that there's enough continuity that, you know, this isn't a total departure, I think, from the tradition. Uh, but we don't have to find every particular and every theologian. 
And if we were to say find a, a definitive disagreement between where Luther is coming from or someone like a Martin Chemnitz is coming from, um, do we have to side with Luther? Of course not. I mean, that, that's such a wrong view. So um, I sometimes hear um, Todd Wilkin, uh, who's a, a host of the program Issues, et cetera, which is very popular among Lutherans. Uh, but he, I know he's identified Lutherism versus Lutheranism. And I think that's a very helpful way to kind of show what's going on in a lot of scholarship. It's a Lutherism. It's just, just following Luther. But Lutheranism is really following what is our confessional heritage. Mm. Yeah. And you make a point um, to talk about the Book of Concord. Uh, you sort of anchor it all within the language of yeah. the Book of Concord and who is being faithful to what the Book of Concord's teaching and who is sort of departing. Uh, and you talk about Immanuel Kant a lot. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about the rise of sort of Kantian thinking that was coming sure. into Lutheran studies and sort of maybe misunderstanding Luther or wrongly attributing the Kantian presuppositions to Luther. And you actually go on to show Luther is more in concert with uh, the, the sort of medieval tradition of Plato sure. and Aristotle. And so set the context for that, yeah, the departure. It's worth, with it's worth just kind of tag, tagging along that for our listeners who are unaware it's probably worth saying that, well, and you've already said this implicitly, Jordan, but it's worth saying that there is this impression that Luther, it is a, a bold, it, it, like the reader should feel the boldness of the claim that Luther is within the kind of classical grammar of scholastic yes. discourse, you know, that he assumes substance and accidents in these things, because a lot of the scholarship just portrays him as rejecting that whole language. Uh, and you're kind of arguing, no, he doesn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. uh, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I do get into this in my in the first volume in the series as well. The prologue in a volume kind of goes over a lot of a lot of this material from a little bit of a different angle. But um, so when we're talking about Kant. I, I mean, if you look at the Enlightenment figures, a lot of them are German. Uh, we see things like you know higher criticism as well comes out of Germany, and so there are a lot of philosophical shifts that are going on in Germany, which is largely where the Lutheran Church is. Not obviously not exclusively. Um, so you do see the influence of some of someone like Kant's ideas within some Lutheran interpreters. That's really clear in especially Albert Ritchel. Uh, and Ritchel is influenced by a particular neo-Kantian, Hermann Lotze. So uh, that influence essentially boils down to, to one key point in terms of, of this particular discussion of, of union with Christ, which this book explains. Um, and that particular point is this, that Ritual believed, along with Kant, that things are to be primarily understood, not what they are in, in themselves, right? That's the inaccessible realm, that's the noumenal realm, but they are to be understood in terms of their impact upon us. That's really, I think, where the, the key shift is. So the way you see this play out in, say, Union with Christ, uh, and it's a bunch of uh, Finnish scholars, starting with Toma Monerma in the 1970s, that really start to point this out. So I'm drawing a lot on what they've pointed out, but I've gone a little bit further in just reading Ritual and trying to identify where is this influence coming from and how, how deep is it. But but ultimately, I think their conclusions are, are exactly right here. So that... Ritual, for example, in his, he's got a large study of the history of pietism, which he's, he's very critical of. And pietism is kind of a whole other, other topic, which is a bit complicated. And I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with pietism. Perfect. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, which pietism is really interesting because it also is one of those movements that is so, I think, misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, and I think Ritual's to blame for that as well. And I think it does have its issues, but yeah, you know, maybe that's a se separate topic, but it is related to this topic of union because it does. We'll, come we'll, we'll have another just... episode on Pietism and invite you yeah. on. To... Yeah, oh, yes. we could do that. The That'd great be hot take. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. no. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's controversial enough to speak about a Lutheran scholasticism, but to say anything yeah, positive right. about Pietism is that's, that's <laughs> yes. maybe even more forbidden. I don't know, but yes. um, so anyway, in that in that uh, treatment of the history of pietism, Ritual deals with this issue of union with Christ because it played such a central role in, in pietist thought and very much in a kind of experiential way for the pietists. Mm -hmm. So what he does then is goes into Luther's writings and says, well, Luther does use this language of union with Christ all the time. The pietists are constantly citing. So Ritual's got to deal with it somehow. Uh, and he doesn't just say, well, I disagree with Luther. 
he wants Luther to kind of affirm what he's saying. So instead of the union be, being anything, you know, metaphysical, ontological, anything like mystical, he says, it's really just a union of wills. So my moral will is now aligned with Jesus's moral will, essentially. Mm. So, and that's because of those underlying philosophical assumptions. We can't talk about participation in any real right. sense. So right. if it's just about his external influence on me, my union with Christ is the influence of his will upon mine. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's pretty much what you're left with. And then after ritual, and, and this is part of the argument that I make, because I, I hear a lot of people that I know are very influenced by modern Luther scholarship. And this is a criticism that I, that I have gotten more than once in my, in my work is, well, if you look at these figures that I'm criticizing, people say, but, but they never cite Kant. They, they, don't, they don't seem like they're influenced by this. They, and, and my argument is, it's not that everyone is consciously like reading Kant all the time. I mean, right. who wants to spend that much time reading Kant anyway? <laughs> um, <Yeah>. But... <laughs> But the point is, this has influenced the scholarship that has influenced the scholarship that has influenced the scholarship. Right. So this is just stuff that's kind of passed down in, and these are assumptions mm -hmm. that now are kind of taken for granted that I think need to be kind of challenged from, from the ground up. Right. Yeah, they're caught more than they're taught. It's kind of like by sure. osmosis, uh, yeah. which Carl Truman shows in his latest book, The Rise yes. and Triumph of the Modern Self. And that really is how it cashes out. Most people aren't reading Karl Marx and then they're like, oh, now I'm a Marxist. <laughs> right. Uh, of course they, not. They, just, they just inherit a sort of uh, aroma in the air. And that's what's yeah. going on here is what exactly. you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's worth um, then, I mean, the book is uh, Union with Christ, Salvation is Participation. Very helpful, historical, and uh, 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 I found that the, the, the positive chapters, that when you break it up into these the, those three aspects of the union, I, I thought were very well done and, and very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, I was telling you before we pressed record, but just for the audience, one of the reasons I so enjoyed this book is, uh, uh, and, and you pronounced his name to 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 say this this uh, this uh, Finnish person's name again. Tuomo meant Monerma. Monerma. Okay, Monerma. that's that's yeah. how to say it. That's the only time I've ever heard it pronounced out loud. So I'm gonna yeah. I'll, I'll go with it. But it's funny because <laughs> yeah. uh, I I I was at Catholic University uh, uh, in D.C. for my undergraduate, and I was you know being an undercover Protestant there. And of course, what do I write about? But Luther, my bachelor's thesis was on Luther and union with nice. Christ, and it was right when that book came out in English. I think it came out in 2004. 2004 or five, if I recall, uh, it was published in English. And so it became a source for, a, you know, a lot of what I did. And so this, this topic has been very interesting to me. And one of the, the things that's been peculiar to me over the years since I graduated, I think I graduated there in 06 or 07. I can't remember which year. Uh, I think it was 07. Uh, but one of the things that's was surprising to me as I read all of my kind of reform systematics in the years since then was that there's a, I gathered there was a wide impression in the reformed community um, that, that the union with Christ theme was sort of our theme. That's, that's the reformed distinctive, yes. you know, to, uh, to sort of, sort of the ordo salutis and to soteriology. And of course I, I read Luther on this and not only was it very obvious to me that Luther had a, a thick, thick doctrine of union with Christ referred to it all the time in relationship to justification, but that his account in some ways I found more profound and uh, maybe even more subtle and sophisticated than a lot of, you know, that I'm not supposed to say, don't tell mom <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> that right. I said this, but I actually found him sometimes as at least as profound, if not more than Calvin on the question. Mm. Uh, and then of course, all the other thinkers wind up talking about, it's not sure. what it turns out as union with Christ is just obviously as it turns out a Christian theme because it's a scriptural thing yes. and every tradition kind of has its way of thinking through how does union with Christ work relative to salvation. But, but Lutheranism, clearly has its distinctive emphases and so maybe one way of sort of working through uh, uh structuring this this portion of the interview then is just uh uh talking through those three uh, uh, those three elements that you identify uh the uh the the objective union with christ as you call it the the formal union of faith uh and then the mystical union uh and so may maybe we can start with the the objective union with christ uh, there is some language here that is somewhat distinctive to Luther, and maybe uh, mm -hmm. you know, for we uh, for we uh, novice reformed ears here, maybe you can help us out with what a 
what is what would the Lutheran account of an objective union basically be? Sure. Well, I will say first, objective union is my term, so that's not like that's a, a classic term. Uh, but but what I'm trying to identify is is I'm trying to give a label to something that I think is very clearly there within within the Lutheran tradition, and this is what Tuoma Monerma refers to as this idea that Christ is a collective person, right? Yeah, uh, and that you know that that's a way for him to capture it. I just wanted a little more of a of a kind of uh, a shorter way to say the same thing. So, um, so I called it the objective union, right? Something, th- the point is, is this, that any talk of union with Christ needs to start, not just with the ordo salutis reality of the application of something to us, but of the historia salutis reality of what Christ has done. And so the idea there is that when the son, the eternal son, the logos takes upon himself a human nature there is something ontological that is occurring for all of humanity. So humanity as a whole is now elevated in some, in some way hmm. so that the incarnation is, is not just about representation. It is that I'm not saying it's not that, right. I think there's something right. more going on there as well. Um, that, that it's more than God just decreed that this one man would represent say the elect. Right but that there's something real and ontological about the fact that now humanity itself is changed because God has assumed humanity in his, right. his son. Um, so that when we're talking about the incarnation, then it's not just that the incarnation is say uh, a kind of precursor to his death. Right. It was necessary yeah. as part of his, as leading up to his death. And I think scripture centers on the death of Christ but it's not that the incarnation does not have saving power in and of itself. This is part of that compact whole of all of the events of Christ's life, death, resurrection. So we can't leave any of those out. So the incarnation, this is really just to say the incarnation is a very vital part of that. Right. And so there is something objective that occurs between Christ and all of humanity. So this is, this is going to necessarily differentiate that approach that you certainly find in Luther and I, and I cite Chemnitz and Johann Gerhard, who I think are very clear on this as well. And they have a lot of patristic support for this, especially a lot of the Eastern fathers. But even going back to people like Irenaeus, they use very similar similar language regarding um, the incarnation. Uh, but this is going to differentiate that from a, a really strictly particularist approach, you know, from, from some in the Calvinistic tradition who are going to right. hold to a more particular atonement, which doesn't really quite fit with that idea. Yes. So there's going to be more of an emphasis on a kind of legal or federal representative connection between Christ right. and a particular Which group you, of people. I think in a, in a footnote in the books, and you've already said it here, but just, just yeah. for the, the itchy reformed ears out there, you're not denying a federal, a federal dimension to this. No, no, absolutely. Not. But it's a, but that's, you don't want to reduce it to, sure. to yeah, a sort of, yeah, to, to that federal union. I find, I yeah. find that fast. One of the things that's, that's interesting, in fact, I think is that a lot of the historical, co- you know, if we were to kind of de- de-confessionally label certain early modern reformed theologians, you know, and just, you know, they were where they were, you know, if you're in England, you're part of the church of England, you know, that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, what's interesting is you find actually in figures like Davenant, uh, or, or, um, uh, 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 or as Michael Michael Lynch has recently shown this, that it's actually part of the Reformed particular, a certain stream of kind of John Owen-ish Reformed particularism is, I think the, the Reformed sources that are really looking at the early modern period are beginning to argue that that's a fairly idiosyncratic uh, right. a tradition, even within the Reformed camp. And there are sure. Uh, a, a kind of, and again, I'm not trying to just redeem the reformed label. It's really just, there's a lot of early modern Protestant theologians uh, that are willing to, I think, to speak yeah. in the way you're speaking, that Christ really does assume something universal in assuming humanity. And one of the things you do in the book, it's, this is a very, I thought, a very helpful thing. It was helpful to me, is argue that it, it, you really do need kind of ancient scholastic categories to be able to say yeah. that well. Because if it, because form is, you know, in, in scholasticism, form is the principle of continuity, you know, sort of sure. across the instances. And so Christ in assuming the form man is doing something to all possessors of the singular form man. Uh, and so I, exactly. I that's sort of very interesting as well. But uh, anyway, um, yeah, very, very interesting. And I, uh, 
uh, as a, uh, somebody on the reform side of the camp, I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, I actually do feel the sting <laughs> of, mm. uh, uh, of the critique of a certain kind of particularism there, which yeah. I, I actually don't think is the best of our own tradition, sure. though it's the most popular strain in American reform theology. Uh, and so I think that's a, at least kind of conservative evangelical American reform theology. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I, I actually, to our reform brethren, I'd highly recommend reading this because it, it does introduce us, I think, to a, to a language and a concept that's helpful for us to recover as well. Um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I think, you know, American reform thought is very influenced by the Princeton theologians. And, and there's, I think, really some good things about that, but there are certainly some negative things about that. So uh, I think, yeah. especially with reform sacramental theology and how it's developed, which which is relevant to all of this as well. But yes, yeah, I can yes. see that. Um, so what about the second? Um, so we, we've got the objective union. Uh, and just to riff off of what Joe is saying, I, I appreciated this part of the book as well, uh, because just set aside the scholastic categories. When Jesus comes, when God comes uh, in the person of the son and he dies, he's born a man. He takes onto himself a human nature, uh, truly, uh, truly God, truly man. And then he dies and he goes into the grave. He goes into uh, Hades. He goes into hell. Uh, he goes into the place of the dead. Sure. In his resurrection, he's sweeping up the, the, the thing that he came for in his train of glory, uh, sitting on the right hand of the Father. That does something. Um, that, that fundamentally shifts what a human is yes. ontologically. Uh, so in the fall, we're broken. The image of God is shattered. And in the death and resurrection, the life, death and resurrection of Christ, there is, and I'll use language that I'm just familiar with, sure. uh, but there's a sufficient, um, there's, an, there's a sufficient objective reality that stands above humanity that is available to all. Uh, that can participate in what Jesus is, has accomplished. But he really has set the context from the fall in which that is available to all. So something does change for us, for all of us. Uh, the, the curse is sort of being reversed in Christ. He makes it an objective reality. So I just find that this language is we, we could parse out all of the different adverbs and adjectives uh, that we need to, but at the end of the day, this just seems to be the clear message of what the Bible says Jesus yep. did. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, yeah. so I agree with the basic premise of the objective union. So talk to us about uh, the second, the second uh, part of union with Christ that you break up in the book. Uh, yeah. Which I think is uh, faith, right? Um, yeah, it's a formal yeah. union of faith. Formal union yeah. of faith, yes. This is where he disses on the Reformed. So uh, Yes, I understand. No, I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. I don't want anybody <laughs> to think that. <laughs> I do. There's some, there's some criticism of Murray there. There's, but uh, uh, it's not all negative, though, either. Yeah, but, no, you're very fair. This is a very yeah. fair book. Uh, and I, I think that's worth saying out loud. Go ahead. Yeah, I think... So the, the reason I... I have really thought deeply through this particular issue, uh, this idea of the formal union of faith, is largely because I was at one time in a reformed context. And if you know, you follow the debates over union with Christ, there's a lot of debates in terms of the order salutis and exactly where union fits and where it doesn't. And um, particularly there ends up being, you know, there's this debate about whether union with Christ precedes justification. Right. Right. And what I found in um say, you know, I know Lane Tipton has an article that I referenced there where he, he makes an argument that the difference between the Lutheran and Reformed on this point is essentially that the Reformed say union precedes justification, the Lutherans say union is an effective justification. Um, and I wanted to explore that claim a little bit, especially seeing how much Luther seems to speak about union with Christ as preceding justification. Because in many ways, it appears, especially in Luther's Galatians commentary, yep. it, it appears that union is a, 
is the context for justification, especially when you think about his marriage metaphor that he uses all the time. Yeah. Right. It's very just common. It's not just from Luther. He's borrowing it from people like Bernard of Clairvaux and it, and it goes back even further than that. But, uh, and then later Lutherans do the same thing. So there is this language of this marriage union of faith and it's through that marriage of the soul with Christ is the language he uses that the two share what belongs properly to them with the other. So our sin yeah. is given to Christ, his righteousness is given to us. So that whole metaphor really doesn't work if union doesn't precede justification. It doesn't really make any sense otherwise. Mm. So, you know, I was thinking through like, well, how exactly do we parse this out? Because when you do read, say, uh, the Formula of Concord, Article 3, um, there's a, a controversy surrounding Andreas Osiander, who I know Calvin spent some time in as well, uh, right. dealing with, and a uh, controversial figure at the time. But he essentially, Osiander essentially argues that uh, union with Christ is the indwelling of the divine nature of Christ within us that changes us. And our justification is a result of that indwelling of Christ's divine nature, which swallows up sin within yep. us. Mm. Yep. So in response to that, the formula of Concord, Article 3, says, no, that's wrong. And there are a bunch of reasons that are outlined there as to why it's wrong. But one of those is that justification precedes or is justification is is the foundation of that internal change in us that is mm. christ union and changing changing right. us inside so the question you have then is like well okay so we've got this marriage metaphor in that seems to pretty clearly say union is before justification then we've got the formula of concord is our confessional document which says the opposite so what do we do? Do we go right. with the Luther versus the Lutherans thesis and, and pick right. one or the other? Well, what I discovered in looking through some of the scholastic sources, particularly in a guy named David Hollatz, who's he's considered generally the, the end of that scholastic era, the era, the great era of Lutheran orthodoxy. Yeah. And he has a, in a section on union with Christ. The whole thing is, is wonderful, but he makes a distinction that I find very helpful. And that's what I'm, what I'm, talking about here is he says, well, there is a sense in which we are united to Christ in faith that, and that's the context of justification, but that's different from what we're talking about with this indwelling that changes us. In other right. words, what we don't want to do is conflate justification and sanctification in more traditional mm -hmm. terms. Yeah. So he says, well, there's a difference between my being united to Christ as my redeemer and mediator that occurs in faith and that indwelling that changes me. So he distinguishes between the formal union of faith and the mystical union. And I find that distinction so immensely helpful because it allows us to just affirm what is clearly the scriptural context of justification, which is I am justified in Christ. Right. So there is an in Christ that is the context yeah. for justification. And God is, and God is establishing that through his speech about yes. me. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That it's a form, would it be fair to call it a sort of formal relational union versus what we might call an existential union, which we get to in a, uh, the second, uh, one of the, sure. uh, uh, one of the debate, like you mentioned in the book, there is a, a, a somewhat reformed intra intra debate that, that is parallels this between Horton and Gaffin, you know, Horton, yes, I exactly. think sort of takes the, in some ways, he speaks of justification as sort of the legal ground of union, I think, is the way that he the way yes. that he puts it. I'm going to throw some language at you, and I'm curious just what your your visceral response to it is uh, 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 or, or how it relates to what you're arguing here. Uh, for a while, I was reading a lot of Horton and Gaffin, and, and I'm not sure I, I totally agreed with either of them, partially because, uh, I, again, I was a little bit influenced by Luther. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, uh, I wonder if, do you think it would be fair to say something like this, that you can distinguish, um, that you can distinguish the God's speech act, and I'm pulling in speech act, which can be a trigger term, but I'm, I'm using it in a word that, in a sense that I hope would be consistent with essentialism, but, but God's pronouncement of just, you know, let there be a justified person, as it were, through the divine call, uh, uh, can we distinguish that that justifying act from the from the from the sinner's state of being justified? So one of the things that you know, 
when I teach this, I suppose, in a Sunday school class, one of the ways I'd want to relate to it is to say we could we could speak of God's act of justifying and the state of being justified that is the result of that act. And that state of being justified is the state of union with Christ by faith. <laughs> That's just, you know, you, you'd never actually get the, the subjective side of being justified apart from anything but union with Christ by faith. But maybe there's a verbal dimension of the word God justifying that sort of produces that whole reality. Uh, would that be relatively consistent with the tradition as you're unfolding it? Or how would you? Yeah. Um, oh, man, this is kind of a big topic because this is getting into what I'm writing in my justification volume following this. Hmm. Um, which ah. is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so as I'm thinking through one of my, my large, my emphases in terms of the doctrine of justification itself is that I believe that scripture does not primarily speak about justification as a past tense event, which is coinciding with conversion, but an ongoing, but an ongoing and by ongoing, I don't mean transformative process, right? But an ongoing declaration yeah so in some ways i don't know how much i would distinguish being justified from a state of being justified because i kind of think justification is the state of being under this forensic verdict yes that makes sense Mm. i yeah so i I don't exactly know how to how to precisely answer your question okay oh no (laughs) worries because it's no yeah i don't know how to answer your to be more clear i don't know how to answer your question without going like way far afield of this oh yeah no topic. Uh, that, 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 that's that, that's helpful uh, that's helpful enough yeah um but the, the way you're parsing it out then would be more like that it would be that first formula we got at which is that uh we would want to distinguish that element of of union with christ that is you might say formal, and it even has a juridical dimension, positional, sure. as it were, and yes. that element of union with Christ that is, for worse, better, worse language, existential, and maybe mystical is even a better way sure. to say that. Uh, uh, and maybe that just gets us then into the third, the third thing, which is, uh, and this is, why is this part controversial, I guess? So the, the mystical on the one hand, the, 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 the kind of Historia Salutis, his redemptive historical union on the other hand the kind of formal union that is behind you know the result of justification but then we enter this this language that's just all over the new testament of a kind of union of uh you know god and me and me and god language all the in all the in language of john and paul uh that that some of the tradition is called a mystical union nevertheless that phrase mystical union is I, I, I gather in Lutheran piety, a very controversial one. Maybe help us understand what the what's the background, to, uh, the triggeredness, I guess, by this category. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's kind of silly that it's that that's a thing that would be controversial. Uh, sometimes the things that end up being controversial in Lutheranism in the last hundred years seem like the most uncontroversial things. Like when people <laughs> doubt when when people doubt the third use of the law, for example. Like right. that, to me, that's the most obvious use of the law. Like mm. that's the one that's like, well, obviously as Christians, God wants you to actually do the stuff he wants you to do. Like yes. clearly that that's the part that shouldn't be controversial. Um, maybe parsing it out, can, you know, we can have some differences and in, in figuring out exactly how it works. But, but I feel the same way about mystical union. It's, it's kind of really very straightforward. And if there's anything that's straightforward in our tradition, it's this reality. I mean, it is attested in our confessions themselves. It's all over the place in Luther. It has really, it was never put into doubt in our entire, the entirety of our tradition, as far as I'm aware, it's not like I've read everything. Um, But, um, and I don't read German, which is a big, you know, a problem for me as a Lutheran. So I'm I'm restricted (laughs) to the, to the English and Latin sources, but um, so maybe you can find something out there, but not that I've seen anyway. Uh, it seems like everyone has agreed on this until you get to the time of Albert Ritual. So at least as far as I've seen, I haven't seen anyone who's who's questioning this um, until that point. So what happens in the 20th century, I think it's just the influence of that liberal theology of ritual and others that ends up influencing Lutheranism as a whole, and then unconsciously gets taken over by those who are in, you know, confessionally Lutheran churches. Um, and in the 20th century, I think there are, there are some other factors there as well. One is the rise of the charismatic movement. And mm. I think that there is a lot of, of skepticism 
I mean, rightly in many ways, but um, not to paint with too broad a brush by any means, but, but there's a lot of skepticism right. of certain aspects of what happened in the charismatic movement. So that I think the language of things being mystical really gets equated with what Lutherans refer to from Luther as enthusiasm. Right. Uh, what, what Luther yeah. criticized in just looking for assurance in these always in these inner experiences or looking for the voice of God apart from the scripture and looking for it in your, in your heart or, um, you know, rejecting external church authorities or rejecting the sacraments for internal experience, those kind of right. things. So I think mysticism and the way that a lot of 20th century Lutherans talked ends up getting conflated with what really are the worst aspects of like enthusiasm, which is in many ways a redefinition of what the term mysticism actually means. So I found a number of places in you know, the 19th century where American Lutherans are using the language of mysticism to refer to Lutheranism. Like, oh, our spirituality is mystical. There's a, there's a quote from Philip Schaff where he, he, he yeah. identifies the difference between Reformed and Lutheran piety, where he says, well, the Lutheran piety is the more mystical one. And, and Lutherans are citing this and saying like, yeah, that's basically true. So, and to a modern Lutheran, that's so weird, but I think largely it's, we've kind of miss, we've changed the meaning of the term mysticism so that we're yeah. really thinking about something that it's not. So the question we have to ask then is like, what is mysticism in the first place? And so it's, it's a similar question that I'm, it's a similar thing that I'm doing with scholasticism, because that's kind of a bad word for a lot of Lutherans as well. And I know I'm being a bit, you know, controversial no, no, for using those terms, but. It sounds like the, in a way that this is, you know, ritual, of course, has come up a couple of times and is such a key figure, but in a way, yeah. the response to scholasticism uh, and the response to, uh, uh, and the response to pietism uh, seem to be shaping this response to the, 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 the mystical yes. union, that yes. that bifurcation, you're sort of rejecting, well, as you said, kind of both streams of Lutheranism. And one of them is the, yeah, the pietist, which would, I would assume, be conflated with the mystical union emphasis. Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. Yeah. And, and maybe it would be helpful, and we do, we are going to start to sort of bring this thing in for, for a closing. Uh, but I, and I want to get there by um, heartily uh, admiring the way that you point out the pastoral implications mm. of this as it applies to people in the pews, uh, because that's really when I was reading your book and thinking through the implications of participation with the divine, like God in me, the Holy Spirit continuing the work of Christ through me. And that is how he is conquering the world, right? Like that's how he's, that's the church militant even in my prayer life and in the the way that I sort of view my good works, it's like, that's actually God. Uh, exactly. And that yeah. and that's God to people. And then I receive God from people. Um, that yep. that's a that's a beautiful the masks. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful encouragement to my soul. But if, if you can give us a concise sort of understanding of what it is you mean when you're saying mystical union and participation now you wrote a book about it so you have to read the book guys like everyone needs to read the book to understand where you're going fully but what do you mean when you say mystical union what does that actually mean are we becoming gods did god sort of implant the divine essence uh in us to where we can grow in that and become more and more like that essence or and i know that's not what you're saying but you know but tell us what you are saying yeah so what, what i'm talking about here is certainly not what you find in in like the mormon idea of, of apotheosis of this like we're of the same substance as god and we get to be like him um you know it's it's a very different thing because if that was what i was saying it would be uh, well, that would be heretical. So right. we wouldn't have you listen. on the program. Uh, yeah, I, 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 hope, I would hope you would. So don't listen right. to me if that's the case. Uh, right. No, so we always have to affirm that that creature creator distinction. So uh, whatever we are saying about the mystical union, it's really key that we identify whatever this union is or whatever this participation is, it never crosses the line that I become in essence God. That's, right. that's an impossibility. And, and that, that there's an infinite you know, ontological gap between me and God. But whatever this union is, is real and it's intimate 
it is relational, but it's not just relational. Uh, and it is the, the language that some of the Lutheran Orthodox use is there's an interpenetration between the two natures. Right. So that they're, they're, they're intertwined. God's nature is intertwined with ours in such a way, not that we become him, but that he is as present with us as anyone could be with any, with anything, the, the closeness of that relationship that God has with us in that mystical union is closer than any, even any physical relationship. Hmm. I mean, this is why, for example, uh, when Paul is speaking about the evils of like prostitution to the Corinthians, he, he makes that parallel between being one with Christ, you know, you're one with Christ. So you can't be doing this with a prostitute even with like a, a sexual union. So yeah. this is even more intimate than, than what we think of as like a sexual human union. Um, and a lot of the difficulty in explaining what the mystical union is, is that it is mystical. <laughs> so that it is right. a mystery. <laughs> and so uh, that's some of the difficulty in like, well, can you give a brief definition? Well, kind of, but, but kind of not, because a lot of what you end up saying is that you, you identify it by what it's not. Kind of like we speak yeah. about the two natures of Christ right. when we're saying like what's not happening. So we could say something similar when we're talking about the mystical union, that Christ is really in us. Uh, the entire triune God you know, dwells within us. We, we have this intimate sharing in the divine life somehow, but it is not to such a degree that there, there's a confusion of natures. And it is not in such a way that it is not a personal union in the way that we have in the hypostatic union. In other words, I can't say I am God, <laughs> Jesus right. could, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so it's not that, we know that. But we also, on the other hand, know that it's certainly not just a union of wills. It's something real. It's right. not just something legal, though we do have certainly a legal and forensic element to it, but it's something beyond that. So uh, mm. it's kind of a non-answer, but that's ultimately, I feel like this answer the scripture has to give us is it puts the boundaries around yeah, which is we it, can talk about this. Is it yeah. fair to say there's a, a kind of uh, a part of what's bound up in this? And I think you've mentioned this already, but I wonder if this is especially where what you've already said is comes to life, which is that there's a there is a sacramental background to some of this yeah. in that I'm hearing the language of kind of that, that interpenetration, for instance, and I'm hearing Lutheran uh, uh, Eucharistic theology there. Sure. Is there a, is there a parallel between sort of the way that Lutherans will articulate the mystical union uh, and the way that they'll articulate how the sacrament works? Is that a, uh, a yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there is. I think that Lutherans are much more apt than the Reformed, I think, to emphasize the intimacy and closeness of God and the created order in such a way that in the Reformed tradition, there tends to be a bit of a nervousness about certain things, um, I think, uh, in terms of, of how God and creatures relate to one another. Mm. But for Luther, and I, I know that there's a lot of nuance to that and yeah, sure. Yes. <laughs> There's yeah. so much to say there, but yeah. uh, but for the sake of brevity, uh, Luther's entire worldview, you could say, is one in which God is active in and through all of creation. His doctrine of vocation, his idea of creatures as masks, masks of God, he sees God actively present in and through creatures and through created things. So that when we talk about the sacraments, the sacraments are beyond signs. They're it's not that they're not signs, but they're not just signs. They are instruments to bring us God himself. So that when we receive the Lord's Supper, we are receiving the Logos. We are receiving the incarnate one present here in the elements. So that there is this union between, just like in the incarnation, the sun and the physical elements coming together in this sacramental meal and then entering into us. So, you know, what's more, what's more closer with us than what we eat. And we're saying yeah. that, that Christ is there in that meal, feeding us literally. Um, and, that and this is may be the last receive the sacrament. thing to get at then. And this kind of brings us, I think for a landing, Dale mentioned sort of the pastoral element of the book. And we're talking about sort of, yeah. uh, you know, a certain element in Lutheran piety. And I do have to say, this is, anecdotal i'm speaking very anecdotally here but i do have to say a lot of my 
a lot of my, uh, uh, those persons who I have experienced getting the Christian life the most right, uh, have been deeply steeped in Lutheran piety. I've always been fascinated by certain sort of flavors, you might say, uh, in Lutheran piety. I've always found it very, very attractive, actually, when I've seen, when yeah, I've seen too. various in instances of it. And so maybe that's a, a, a good note to end on is, you know, because part of what we want to say is, you know, the Lutheran tradition, even if we're reformed sitting over here, the Lutheran tradition is nevertheless a tradition for the Catholic Church. It's its own presentation with its own distinctives that are worth hearing and, and sitting before and, and, and listening to. How do you think this kind of all translates all the way to the all this union with Christ's language translates all the way to the ground and kind of Lutheran pastoral life. You're also a pastor. Uh, so, uh, you know, you know, presumably you're in the pulpit. This has something that this gives you something to say to grandma. Uh, and so yeah. you know, yeah. is it, what does it give you? Yeah. Yeah. I think really what, what is that? What's so helpful about our, you know, there's, there's so many things I could say, but one of the things that I find most, at least in my ministry and my preaching on this topic is that when we're talking about our good works and we're talking about your life and your vocation and we're speaking about obedience to the law, sanctification, any of those things, ultimately that is going to be based upon this idea that Christ is in me, changing me. So that it is ultimately God's work in and through you for the sake of others that is guiding yes. your life in Christ. Hmm. So that it's not, it's not like we have you know, justification over here. And then sanctification is something totally separate, which is my, my work or just my thank you to God, where I try really hard to kind of maybe make up or give God back for what he's done for me. No, but it, it's part of this picture that is Christ himself. So Christ is working in and through me and he is largely doing that to serve and bless the neighbor, just mm. as Christ lived a life of self-giving for the sake of others, Ultimately, the Christian life, if it is Christ living in me, Luther even could call us little Christs at, at some yeah. point. Yeah. And we um, live in our neighbor. <laughs> exactly. We live yeah. in our neighbor. And there's that. He also, it's interesting that Luther sometimes will use that mystical language to refer to our relationship to our neighbor as well. Yes. You know, there is this connection between all of us at, mm. as human beings who God created in his image in that I do live in and through and for, or at least I should, <laughs> before the neighbor just as christ has done for and in me hmm. yeah. um, so so i think it's eminently practical it's it's very practical yeah. yeah yeah i appreciated this book brother uh keep up the good work um yes. you're doing you're doing good things we're looking forward to your project sort of unfolding so you already mentioned it uh but i'll i'll we'll close with uh, i'll ask you one last question and then we'll close because i can never sure. let joe get the last word yeah just go ahead dale you win you win I <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh so yes you've got a book on justification coming out but tell us some of the other projects that you guys are working on that we should keep our eye um sort of uh, you keep our eye on and then um where we can find all of your stuff. Where should we go? What, where should we look? And what should we look for? Yeah, um, so justincenter.org uh, is where you can go find pretty much all of our stuff there. You can find links to everything uh, that, that we do there. In terms of upcoming projects, um, we, we recently released a volume on justification, which is a series of essays. So um, we're, we're beginning a series of essay volumes. And each of those is eight essays from separate authors. Uh, and so we have a number of different topics coming out, but the first one was just released, which is on um, the doctrine of justification. So we've got that. Uh, Nathan Greeley, who I know has written some Davenant book uh, articles and yeah. some of their publications as well. Big shout out. We love him. Um, yeah. Yeah. We no, love he's, Nathan. He's yeah. wonderful. He's very involved with us. He's our fellow of apologetics and philosophical theology. So, um, you know, he's definitely on the same page as, as I am on a lot of you know, these areas of Lutheran scholasticism. So um, he is, he's written a book on apologetics, which is like a lay level approach to apologetics. Uh, and that is, is going to be released this fall. So look for that soon. Um, Perfect. And yeah, so we're, you know, I'm, I'm continuing writing that series of books that I had mentioned. I've got one on justification. Um, we've got someone that's going to be writing uh, we're going to be releasing a book on the euthanasia question from a you know, mm -hmm. ethical philosophical perspective, um, which is um, 
from uh, Gregory Schultz, who is he's a professor at Concordia University in Mequon. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's wonderful. So uh, and the manuscript that I've read through, it's it's great. So <laughs> great. But, uh, that, that's that's an upcoming work as well. A lot of philosophical theology and questions there as well. So uh, and plenty of critiques of Kant there, too. So. Yeah, yes. Well, <laughs> Dr. Jordan Cooper, Union with Christ, Participation is Salvation. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Yes. Uh, as always, if uh, you guys need to find any of Joe and I's previous episodes, you can head over to Davenant Institute's YouTube channel. Check out davenantinstitute.org. And uh, you can also catch us on iTunes and all of the podcast catchers. So look up Pilgrim Faith. Uh, we've got uh, a Facebook group if you want to join the conversation. So it's the Pilgrim Faith, Faith uh, uh, Facebook group. And then we've got our page. So look us up and let us know if we're doing a good job. If not, if you have any criticisms, direct them towards Dr. Cooper, not towards us. Yeah. Uh, so go to his page. <laughs> uh, but thank you, Dr. Cooper. We appreciate yes. you, brother. Until next time. Joe, I love you. Love you too, and, man. Uh, we will see you next time. See ya.